Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 21st. This is the year 2019. And if you can't tell, I am in a damn good mood today. That's because we're having a guest come back on. guy that we've had on a few times before. I don't remember if it was two or three. His name is John Moody. This guy has always been one of the good guys in the food movement, at least for the past decade or so. Um, he has done a lot of really great work. It all started when he had health problems, and so did his family, and they moved um, to 35 acres of land and put all of the study he did on growing your own food uh, to, to, to work for him and his family and healed himself. He is the founder of a, a buying club called the Whole Life Buying Club and co-founder with Joel Salatin, of all people, of the Rogue Food Conference. What the hell is Rogue Food? You're going to find out today. What is a Rogue Food Conference? You're going to find out today. How can you attend? You're going to find out today. Why should you attend? You're going to find out today. And what is the single largest act of sedition and insurrection that you can commit in our modern day and age? You'll find out today. All of that and more in just a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. John and I are going to talk today about how people don't have time to do things anymore. And it's really not that we don't have time to do things anymore. We let others dictate what we have time to do. And what suffers is our skills, our knowledge, our families, our friendships, our relationships, etc. Well, one of the things that shouldn't suffer is your skills. And a great way to start building basic skills that every man and, frankly, most women used to have in this country is building your own knife. Now, I know what you're thinking, Jack. I, I really don't have time to go put a forge in my garage and start hammering and learn to be a blacksmith first. You don't have to do any of that. With KnifeKits.com, you get a basic knife frame. It's already ready to go. You get your own handle material. You pick some custom things like maybe the pins or things like that. You get a book or a DVD, and there's plenty of help on YouTube. And you just, from a kit, hence knife kits, make your own knife. What a great thing to do with your kids. Um, it's something I think everybody takes pride in when they show somebody something and say, I made this. Well, you can make your own knife. It's not that hard. And the thing is, it ain't even that expensive. And there's even a little bit of a discount if you're an MSB member on all the stuff at knifekits.com. Check them out today. Uh, these guys, when we first vetted them to see whether they could be a sponsor, they passed with flying colors. Never heard a bad word about them now in about nine years of them supporting our show. So check them out today, knifekits.com. Next up today, the Free State Project, which is headquartered in New Hampshire. I'm going to tell you that I have never been to a place where I'm surrounded by people that I feel more comfortable, other than maybe right here on my own property when I do my own events, than, than I have when I've supported events for the Free State Project in New Hampshire. Uh, they're just amazing people. And what I'd like you to think about is, most of the time, people that are in the liberty movement feel very alone. If it wasn't for social media, I don't even think that the, the organized liberty movement would even be a thing anymore. I think it's the Internet that made people realize they're not alone. But, you know, you organize a meetup in Florida or Texas or whatever for, you know, volunteers or libertarians or whatever. Uh, it, well, how many people show up? Like three? Four if you're lucky? Right? And two of them really are not much use? I'm, I'm just sorry. It's the way it is. 
You go to New Hampshire, and you can't help but find people that want to be part of making the world a freer place. That's why their, their catchphrase is liberty in our lifetime. And I'm, I'm talking about a place where you know people start having a run-in with the bad side of the law, and next thing you know, there's, there's three or four people showing up video and everything. That's the kind of place that New Hampshire's become with these folks that are part of the Free State Project. They'd like you to join them. And you can learn all about the Free State Project at fsp.org forward slash join. Uh, before we get John on, just want to remind you guys, the way I pay the bills around here is with the Member Support Brigade. This is not PBS. You're not going to give me 50 bucks, and I'm going to send you a $2 shopping bag with my logo on it. That's not how that works. The way it works is you join the Member's Brigade. It's 50 bucks a year. When you work it out toward each episode, it's about 18 cents an episode, 18.3 cents if you do the math, without the new math necessary. But if you go ahead and use the discounts that I've secured for you guys, you'll get your money back multiple times over every year. It's really a great deal. Consider joining the Members Support Brigade today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. With that, let's go ahead and welcome our special guest back to the show. His name is John Moody. He farms at Moody Family Farms in Kentucky. And he is going to talk to us today about something he's put together, along with Joel Salatin and some other amazing people, called the Rogue Food Conference. And with that, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Great. Thanks for having me, Jack. John, we've had you on at least twice. It might have been three times. I'm not sure. I didn't look it up for today. But there's probably people that have no idea what the heck a John Moody is. So let's start out with that, man. Tell us a little bit about your background, kind of how you got into the whole uh, sustainable food movement, et cetera. Yeah, so basically I was like your typical standard American um, breakfast cereal eating, cartoon watching, almost transparent white from television and video games in the 1980s kid. Um, and when I got to my early 20s, Thought I was healthy, just like everybody else, even though I had terrible seasonal allergies and rampant dental decay, and I'd get sick all the time. But hey, that's that's health in America. Um, until I developed a condition known as duodenal ulcers, which best way I can describe duodenal ulcers is imagine Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs live inside your gastrointestinal trap. <laughs> And they're armed with razor-sharp pickaxes, crack cocaine, and Metallica music. Okay, great. Um, and, it, it, you know, it just feels like you're being mined from the inside out. Um, oh. So I go to the doctor. Doctor says, hey, man, um, we'll just put you on these drugs. I say, hey, doctor, what do these drugs do? <laughs> he couldn't really effectively answer that question. Sure. He had the drug insert. I love how they're prescribing things that they actually don't know what they do. Um, so, and, you know, he's like, oh, well, it shuts off your body's ability to produce hydrochloric acid. And my first thought was, is like, I'm an, I'm an X-Men. I'm an Avenger. Like, they need me. Like, hydrochloric acid burns through rock, burns through metal. Yeah. And my thought was like, you know, if my body produces hydrochloric acid, my body probably needs it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I kind of... <laughs> Well, well and you know, you know, like uh, you've heard about people eating poop pills. Yeah, like it, one of the reasons people are having to eat other people's poop <laughs> is because so many of them started taking Nexium and all these other digestive altering drugs. Because, like, 
that hydrochloric acid, you know, it plays a small part in things like cleaving proteins so your body can digest proteins properly or, you know, like getting rid of pathogenic bacteria before it enters your, you know, your GI tract where it can take up residence and make you need to eat someone else's poop. Um, but, you know, this is stuff that doctors, you know, it, it's just they, they just push pills. And, you know, then when you get another problem, they'll give you another pill. But see, the really cute girl that gives oh. away donuts and trips to Hawaii for medical conferences said to prescribe it. Oh, exactly. You just don't understand, John. I mean, that's that's totally rational for doing that. That's how you make decisions. <laughs> she said it's in studies and stuff, so I don't have time to read them because I'm a doctor and I work 90 hours a week, so that's the oh, stuff yeah. I prescribe. And I'm not even really picking on doctors there. Like, it's literally the system that's been created for doctors. It's why they walk into exam rooms backwards. You know, okay, you came here, you have this, I match it to this and sign this magical piece of paper and send you off with it, and then you get that, and then you come back, and if it's working, great. If it's not, I add another pill. And it's, yeah. it's not their fault. It's the system that they're in. So I don't want to sound too Dr. Basher there, you know. Well, and there, and there are some great doctors out there. We're, we're really thankful that over the past, I guess my wife and I have been married 14 years, almost 15 years, and we've had children all but nine months of that. Um, but other than like a three- or four-year span – We've had fair, you know, maybe a little bit more of that. We've had, we have a number of good doctors we've gotten to deal with in the midst of the absolute disaster that is, you know, the healthcare system. So, you know, doctor couldn't do anything but give me pills. Um, a professor at the school I was going to at the time pointed me to the work of a, um, a lady by the name of Sue Gregg. Sue Gregg pointed us to the work of Sally Fallon and the Weston A. Price Foundation. And basically over the course of 18 months, I not only healed my digestive issues and ulcers and stuff through food, but I live in the Ohio River Valley on a 35-acre farm and homestead, one of the worst places in America for allergies. I have zero seasonal allergies. Like I, 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 I had such bad allergies as a kid, Benadryl sent me free stock options as a thank you for patronage. Um. And like, I don't have dental, you know, I haven't had a cavity in, you know, 14, 15 years or something crazy. Um, so, so we just went totally down the rabbit hole. <laughs> awesome, man. Now you have this thing coming up and that's what we're mainly here to talk about today called the Rogue Food Conference. So let's start out with the obvious question that raises, what is Rogue Food? And what kind of foods and activities qualify to be rogue food? Yeah. So this this idea was Joel Salatin. So about three years ago, Joel and I were having lunch. And Joel said he wanted, you know, th there are a thousand resources and a hundred conferences that will teach you to jump through the circus hoops of compliance with government regulation. Just, you know, there, there are tons of people who will help you comply, help you go through the circus, you know, vainly dot all your T's and cross all your I's. And he goes, what if we did a conference teaching people how to successfully color outside the lines? What if we did a conference completely devoted 
to creative circumvention of regulation. And, and that's what this event is. There will be nothing else like it, I guarantee, pretty much anywhere. So it's a break-the-rules conference. Well, well, not so much break the rules, <laughs> um, but, but how can you successfully innovate and frustrate the, the you know, regulatory system? Um, really, you know, you know, kind of like, uh, so it's, it's a break the spirit of the rules conference. Yeah. Well, you're not really breaking the rules, but you're breaking their spirit and making them cry. Yeah. Or, or you're using the rules <laughs> against them. Sure. Uh, you know, so like one of the people who's speaking, uh, lady by Nitty Bali, she's in the state of North Carolina, which I believe is like, um, uh, you know, If I remember correctly, there was like a guy who had a blog who's in North Carolina, and it was about how he overcame diabetes through a low-carbohydrate diet and stuff. Okay. And the RDs, the Registered Dietitian Association, and other people in North Carolina basically like sued him for giving dietary advice without a license. <laughs> By blogging about how he you, – you, you'd think they would be thrilled. Like here is a man who is on his way to an early death. Sure. And, and he has figured out that through diet and lifestyle changes, he can reverse a debilitating, incredibly expensive condition. And these people, instead of going, oh, yay, um, partly because you know the RDs are like sponsored by Coca-Cola, go, oh, crap, we need to shut him up. Um, so Nitty's in this state of North Carolina, which is really – and so she wanted to be able to talk about food. She wanted to help people access food. And so she founded a 501c3 food church okay. where she teaches to people about food. And the church provides food to its members from other members who are farmers. It, it's just crazy. <laughs> um, it, so that's more what it is it's like that's he, some judo shit right there man oh, is, oh yeah yeah it's definitely not something you're gonna hear about or see anywhere else and so that's what basically like all the speakers are about is all of us have kind of looked at the cost of compliance and realized there's just no way we're ever going to be able to comply with this load of crap You know, we're never going to be able to play ball in this sandlot. So we're just going to go make our own sandlot to play ball in that isn't subject to their referees. No, I get it. I mean, it's it's similar. To like, So there's a million ways to do this, and it's really about being smart. So, for instance, when we had the farm in West Virginia, we wanted to offer raw milk. And West Virginia is like the state you can't do it in. It's impossible. You can't sell it for pet food. You can't have a cow share. You can't do it. It's not doable. Um, but you can sell raw milk for the purpose of a soil amendment. <laughs> so you can put right on the label, this is not for consumption, and use of it in any way that is inconsistent with the label is a violation of local and state law. But you can also brag about the fact that it's been refrigerated since the time it came out of the cow and will be ultra fresh when it's applied <laughs> to, your, um, to your soil for improving the soil. And you can even say, you know, a best applied by date. And then 
you know, it's up to people to do whatever they want. And it's it's literally it's 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 foolproof because it says on the label you can't feed it to people or animals. And if you do it, you broke the law. But I just don't see anybody breaking your house and watching you and going, you better not drink it. <laughs> like it's it's Jeff. I'm sure you're familiar with the the comment by Jeff Lawton that the more restrictions upon a design, the better the design if the designer is up to the task. So that's what you're talking about is looking at all the restrictions and saying how do we design around them or how do we channel them to our advantage? You know, where is the government? put limits on itself that it thought were not going to be applied in this manner, and how can we use those? Or how do we redirect this? Or how do we make them look so stupid they shut up and go away? Oh, yeah. And, and you know, like like T Tyler Boggs and his wife Elizabeth, I'm super excited to meet them and hear in person about their operation. Because um, from what I've been told is they on, like, you know, Fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars of donations a year feed more needy people than their entire state food bank system um, through their heart-to-heart -heart farm program and stuff. Uh, you know, so so like it, it's just you know these people have been super creative and super successful too. Like like their ideas have been tried, they've been tested. I know Nitty's been visited by the USDA multiple times. My Buying Club was raided um, by the Kentucky mm. State Health Department. Um, I know Tyler has had numerous run-ins with the authorities. But, but all these people are still standing, still just totally running with it, going after it. Um, and that's what we really, you know, we wanted to highlight models that have successfully kind of stood up the scrutiny and pushback from the powers that be. Already been attacked and still standing, in the words of Elton John, right? Exactly. So we'll talk a little bit more about the founders of this. You mentioned uh, Joel Salatin. Who's all involved in this? Well, I mean, Joel just approached me um, because, you know, like, when before I proposed to my wife, I took her out to dinner at a restaurant. And we're sitting at a restaurant, and I look at her, um, you know, while, while we're sitting here and I just say to her in casual conversation, I go, just so you know, one day I'm probably going to end up in jail. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, she was like um, starry eyed and, and in love with me, probably the biggest mistake of her life. Um, and so, like, she did not take me seriously at all when I said that, you know, sure. she I was like being silly or whatever. And so then, you know, like five or six years later, was it somewhere in that ballpark, you know, after we were raided by the Kentucky State Health Department and they serve us cease and desist and quarantine orders. And I basically give them a big, you know, thumb at the nose, get multiple hundreds of people to break the quarantine, break the cease and desist, basically tell them, you know, come and get me. <laughs> Joking uh, <laughs> about going to jail, were you? Like, <laughs> like you know, I was honest with you, babes. I told you up front. <laughs> well, if you know what, if you told anybody that I went to jail for plants, they would swear to God you must be growing dope. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that that's the crazy thing here that we're actually even having this conversation at all. But something has to be done, so. 
designing around it, I guess, is about as good as it gets. Yeah, well, and yeah, you know, so Joel approached me. So me and Joel are like the sole organizers. Um, we have a number of great sponsors involved already, like Lehman's, the great homesteading store out of Ohio is sponsoring the event. Um, Joel Hansen, who's a really great guy, um, used to be with the Nutritional Therapy Association. When Joel sent out an email to some people just saying, hey, we really want to make this happen. Who will give us some seed funding to, to be able to make this event a reality? He immediately wrote and said to check. He's just like, this is fabulous. I want to support this. So we have a bunch of great companies and, and people who are helping support the event kind of in the background. And we're just we're hoping, you know, the next few weeks is when we're really going to kick off promotion. Um, so other people who want to support the event, other companies, people who want to come and vend, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, we want a, a really big tent of all kinds of people who care about the fact that, you know, um, you, you basically cannot sell a pork chop to your neighbor without it going through a $3 million butchering facility. <laughs> the level of insanity that that represents is hard to even get your head around. I mean, and there's ways around it. I mean, I do turkeys usually. I, I didn't do I took a year off. But, you know, I do turkeys, and basically you buy the live bird, and I deliver it to the butcher for you, and you pay for it and pick it up. Uh, that's a, actually from larger animals, a trick I learned from Joel. Uh, but the fact that I can't just have my, because I don't want to butcher turkeys. Let me just be clear. I don't want to do it. Like so, there is some on-farm stuff and all. I got a really great guy that does it so cheap I can't afford to do it. It's yep. about 45 minutes away. You know, I could load up a truck and a trailer once a year and take a bunch of turkeys down there, have them processed, and, and sell them as, you know, whole birds or parted out or whatever out of my garage. The fact that that can end up with me in jail is so preposterous in a country that is constantly patting itself on the back as being what? The freest nation on earth. And my response to that is, I bet you, if you go to, like, Thailand and try to put somebody in jail because they sold pork chops to their neighbor, you're going to end up buried in a rice field. <laughs> Don't tell me that. We, I think in some ways we are more free than other nations, but I think if you want to say on totality that we're the freest nation on earth, I don't know what you're smoking, but I would like some, please. I mean, yeah. really, like, it's insane. And then people chant it to the point where a catchphrase becomes a, a mantra of a religion of statism where they believe this bullshit. And I don't get it. Like, how do you think we're free when what you just said is true? Like, and I think there are people that if you said, hey, look, you know what, if I sell pork chops to my neighbor, I can go to jail, they would think you're crazy. But they've never actually tried to buy real food, so they don't – and they've never tried to sell it, so they have no idea. Yeah. Well, you know, like um, Americans live under the illusion of choice. Like, you, you know, you, because, oh, I can go to Kroger or Walmart. <laughs> And, and well, and, and it's true because, like, you know, most Americans don't understand that, like, 85% of all meat consumed in America basically comes from, like, four or five corporations. Sure. Because when you go to the grocery store, every grocery store has its own labels. I'm free. I can, I can go to Walmart. I can go to Kroger. I can go to Giant Eagle or, you know, what, what, or Aldi's or whatever. But it's all the same companies. 
Like, like, like it's, it's the illusion of choice. And yeah, to echo what you said, it's like, you know, I've been to Mexico. Um, I've been to Brazil. I've been to Turkey and Greece and a number of other nations. And what was so striking to me when I was in a lot of those nations is, yeah, like there's some areas where they have like minimal freedom compared to Americans. But, but there are a lot of areas where they enjoy a freedom that the average American cannot even fathom. You, yeah. you know, because like in America, you can't even choose what light bulb you use or what kind of toilet you crap on. And, and, these, and these people would be like, what? <laughs> you know, I told this story a long time ago. I mentioned Thailand. It's probably in my subconscious why I chose that nation. But I have a, a good friend I worked under as a mentor when I was in my marketing and sales days uh, named Mike. And he had a good friend that kind of hit the dot-com boom perfect. Like he got into some of the – well, like an early tech company – got a bunch of stock options, was able to have that company actually go public, liquidate and get out before the crash, and then did it a second time. He got two in. So he ended up being worth like a couple million bucks and being like 38 years old. And he's like, you know what? If I don't stay here in this country, I'm done. If I stay here, I have to keep working if I want the lifestyle I want. So he moves to Thailand, and after a while he realizes, like, I, I really want something to do. So he buys like a four-acre little island. And this is not like an island like, you know, it's way out at sea. This is like an island that like you probably can walk through the marsh and get to. They build a little footbridge over to get to it. But he buys this little island, and there's enough room on it to put in a disc golf course. So he puts <laughs> in a disc golf course. He hires some Thai girls to drive around in golf courts and sell beer out of coolers and charges tourists to come play disc golf on this little island. <laughs> It took him buying the island and bribing an official or two for far less money than you would ever spend for one permit here in about 15 days to get this thing set up. And no one bothers him. Everybody's like, okay, he does that. He's not actually trafficking drugs through here or nothing, whatever. We don't care. Yep. What would it take to take a four-acre marsh island in the United States and put in a disc golf course and have people sell beer out of the back of a golf cart? I, I think you'd, he did this in like 2006. I think you'd still be working on it here. <laughs> and I know that's not related directly to our topic, but it actually is because it's that level of regulation in everything. We're just coming at it from a standpoint of food today. Yeah. Oh, oh no. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, so we have this elderberry syrup business we started a few years ago. And um, I have a few people who really want to partner with us to be affiliates and distribute and help us really scale up the business. You know, so like finally at a point where we kind of have to start to jump through hoops. Um, so I called an agency here in Kentucky who was supposed to be able to give me answers. And that one phone call resulted in 13 more phone calls to like eight different agencies at least, all of whom – I somehow have to magically figure out what they want, what they don't want, how it fits in with the other agency. And then there is an even an agency on the all the other agencies who will help you apply for grant money and other things so you can comply with all the other agencies. It, it, it's just like um, you the know, agency <laughs> agency. Yeah. The agency agency. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's just madness and, and, you know, and it's just madness. And so, you know, that's why Joel and I are passionate about this because 
I think, you know, kind of like with the cannabis issue, the marijuana issue, you know, the public eventually realized killing people and locking people up over a plant, even if you don't like the plant, is is a, is a type of stupidity that we just should no longer endure. And, you know, I, I want to see that around food, like the idea that. If your neighbor wants to sell chicken pot pies to other people in the area, um, you know, that you're going to call the health department on them and threaten them with thousands of dollars of fines and eventual jail time if they don't comply. I hope we get there to that with food and farming, you know, that people will realize it's, it's right up there with killing and caging people over plants. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's it's one of those things that, like, when this stuff comes up and somebody puts out a blog article and, and all about it, as mystified as I am when I start, if, like, it's a big publication, like, you know, HuffPost or something like that, what really blows me away is the number of people that actually support the state. In these, <laughs> in, not in, as a whole, right? You know, not in the yeah. Rhodes arguments, but literally like, well, you know, if we let people do this, people will be dying everywhere. Well, we did this for 150 years in this country, and nobody oversaw anything, and nobody died from it. Like literally, like a lot of this stuff, literally nobody died from it. Like, it, it doesn't even begin to make any sense to me. Could you kind of talk about just in general why this matters? Why does rogue food matter in the first place? Like people can get food; it's not like people are starving to death. Maybe nutritionally, but you know, you you can you do have. The ability to buy organic, there is, you know, beyond organic producers, there are options. So why is this entire movement important? Uh, well, you know, we can hit it from a few angles. First is, um, again, like, you have the illusion of what you can buy for the most choice in America. Um, and, and in the background, the food and farming sector is continuing its march towards total consolidation and hegemony over the food supply. Um, you know, so it's just, um, you know, whether it's like access to regional and local butchers or the imposition of the FDA food code, which is like the FDA's dream is to get all 50 states to adopt the FDA food code in totality and stuff. Um, or, you know, it's, um, like, if we don't continue to push back, you know, the the very little bit of breathing space we have left is going to be squelched, which means, you know, a, a lot of people who listen to your podcast and show, they're homesteaders, they're farmers, they want to be able to produce food, they want to be able to maybe make a little bit of a side hustle with their food, they want to be able to transition um, you know, out, out of a job into maybe a value added job that's related to stuff they can produce on their land and farm. And, 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 you know, we're like the ball work that's seeking to both protect and expand those opportunities. Um, it, it just kills me how hard it is to have a small business in America because of the regulatory environment. Um, you, you know, like take like needing a certified kitchen. Um, like in, in a lot, in many parts of the country, if you need to use a certified kitchen to produce a product, you're looking at like 25 to 50 bucks an hour to use a kitchen. 
so if it takes you four hours to produce a product, you're at a negative $200 starting point without any of your other costs factored in. So it's, uh, you know, as somebody who cares deeply about economic opportunity, you know, sustainable systems, um, rogue food is like the last wall of defense before we basically have nothing left freedom wise, food wise. Absolutely, man. So this conference, where is it? When is it? And let's talk a little bit more about the why behind it. Why, why we're making this a conference instead of just like, let's say, uh, a blog or, a, a, you know, something that puts out information. Um, so it is January 25th of 2020. So I guess that's five months from now, um, five months and a few days, if my math is correct. And it's going to be at the Cincinnati International Airport, which is here in Kentucky. Um, so just just over the Ohio River from Cincinnati, because um, we chose we chose that airport because it's like one of the cheapest airports in the entire nation to fly into from basically okay. um, a friend of mine actually flew from Texas, you know, to that airport and home again round trip. And I think it was like under $200 for like a round trip flight. Um, so, so we're like, Oh, this is a great airport, super affordable. Uh, and Kentucky's a super low cost place to do things compared to like trying to do an event in a Chicago or, you know, a, a super big city. So it's going to be at the, you know, at the Marriott hotel, um, at the Cincinnati international airport in January. Awesome. And uh, let's talk a little bit more about the why behind the conference itself. Like I said, you are getting people to come to a place. And, like, usually there's a reason for that beyond we're going to do a webinar or something like that. Yeah, well, one is we wanted people to have the opportunity. There's a good bit of time built into the schedule for people to, like, interact with one another and interact with the speakers, um, you know, cause like we, we want people to come to be inspired and to build on and innovate on and adopt and expand these ideas. Um, or, or just get really excited about supporting people who are willing to go farther, um, and, and to continue to fight and, and kind of, you know, take these things, you know, to the next level. Got you, man. So um, let's talk a little bit about the overall direction. We've kind of alluded to that up till now, but what is going on right now in terms of farming, food, homesteading at kind of a national level? I know you're a guy that has your finger on the pulse. Uh, you used to be uh, you know, running the, the, farm, the def uh, farm Legal Defense Fund or something like that. I know we when we were actively farming, we were part of that as part of basically insuring ourselves. So I know you know what's going on. What What is going on out there right now? Yeah, so, you know, um, at the state level, especially because of the Institute for Justice, there's been some continued good legislation in the areas of like cottage food. Um, and, and, you know, especially that area, because that's what Institute for Justice has chosen as like one of their four or five focuses. 
Um, you, you know, so in a number of states, you've seen, you know, good legislation that expands what you can do out of your home or, you know, what, what you can do with minimal to no regulation or oversight. Um, at the federal level, it's just an absolute, you know, lack of a better word, shit show. Um, so, you know, FISMA is being rolled out right now, the Food Safety Modernization Act. And as a lot of us warned, um, you know, a, a lot of the so-called protections and exemptions for small players um, aren't going to actually protect and exempt small players. Um, and a lot of businesses that no one ever imagined would get ensnared in FISMA um, I'm getting reports from across the country. Like a good example is like feed mills. Um, so a, a friend of mine in Ohio said their local feed mill is reducing what they'll do custom order wise and increasing minimum order amounts because of the FISMA compliance paperwork and regulations that they now face as a small local feed mill. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's going to be a real doozy to watch and see, you know, over the next four or five years, exactly what all happens because of FISMA um, and, and, you know, how, how that impacts all the different players who make up agriculture, um, especially all of us smaller players. So just a couple weeks ago in Louisville, Kentucky, um, was the nation's largest food safety conference. Um, so it's like the creme de la creme of regulators from all levels of government and, you know, big corporations and food safety experts. And um, a few of my friends went to that conference and gave me a debriefing. And basically the big three takeaways they had from the conference is the FDA would love to see the FDA food code adopted or you know, imposed on all 50 states um, because, you know, that would basically like give the FDA free run of all 50 states. And, and basically, you know, they'd get to dictate everything about how those states handle, you know, everything that falls under their food system and food distribution and whatnot. Um, so FDA salivating and still trying to figure out a way to, cajole or force the entire nation under their thumb. Um, a bunch of the state regulators are really, really unhappy about the expanding cottage food movement. Um, you know, cause as you said, they're all sitting there going, you know, grandma's peach cobbler is going to cause, you know, a pandemic if we don't do something about it, <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's hard to say such things with a straight face. It really is. And I mean, see, the thing is, like, all this stuff they're saying, like, you can't do this. But the people they're saying can't do this do it every day and feed their families, they feed their neighbors, they feed their guests. Like, people are not dropping over and dying because they went to Tom's house for dinner. Right? You know what I mean? People are not dropping over and dying because I gave them a can of Granny's Chow Chow Relish. Yeah. Well, so, but the minute I put a label on it and sell it, all of a sudden now it's a health risk. Well, and that's that's what I used to always say when I, you know, be in discussions or debates. I'm just like, if this food was actually dangerous, 
Or, you know, or like, like, if this food was actually dangerous, why am I allowed to have house guests? Or why does it only become possibly dangerous because I actually might make a profit that doesn't enrich the corporate government-controlled food system? You, you know, it, it really is a uh, – like, obviously, there's a lot of sheeple who buy into the the government needs to protect me from my neighbor bullcrap. Absolutely. And see, there's something at play here that I don't think people really understand. The agriculture and food industry in America is about a $1 trillion industry. We look at the total food industry. Now, people would think that the people behind these regulations are nothing but big food companies. They're a big part of it. It's, there is an incentive there, and when you start talking about this conference and all, it kind of clicked for me. When you put this type of regulation in place, you create an entire new industry sector for tons of other companies to capitalize on. So regulatory compliance, legal firms for things like that, accounting firms. There are, there are tons of other industries whose lobbyists want things like to, hap to happen like this. They don't care that it's food. They care that it happens. So what they want to do is they'll look at the largest sectors of, of, of money that there are in the country. Finance and banking, healthcare, food, right? Like all that stuff. And they'll try to get something just like this put in place in every one of those sectors because now they're necessary. Putting it another way, how often would people need a CPA if we didn't have to pay income tax? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, they're, they're Yeah, so much of the U.S. economy exists only because of the hoops you have to jump through. <laughs> It's creating an opportunity to parasite people. So I'll create this regulation, and then you need my lawyers. I'll create this regulation, now you need my accountants. I'll create this, um, this technological barrier, and now you need my computer consultants. And now you need my software. And now you need my internal auditors so you don't get raped in the butt when their federal auditors come in. And then it's yeah. just like, okay, that, that was juicy. Where can we do this next? And food is a place where I just feel like we have to draw the line and say, you don't get to do it here because this is how we sustain our lives. It, you, I keep hearing this bull crap that health care is a human right. And I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll, 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 put, I'll tell you this. I think access, you know, somebody preventing you from going to the doctor, I'd say your ability to go to the doctor is a human right. Me paying for it for you, not a human right. But health care is a human right. If health care is a human right, if you could say that with a straight face, how can you tell me food isn't? Right, you're, you're impeding my ability to feed myself the food I want to eat, and that goes back to that judge who then went to work for Monsanto, uh, <laughs> who said you do not have a right. When it was over raw milk. You do not have a right to determine what goes in your body. Well, what effing right do I have? If I don't have a right to choose what I eat and what I drink, what freedom do I actually have in the freest nation on earth? Oh, oh, yeah, it's it's madness. And so, you know, that's why, again, that's why Joel and I wanted to do the conference, because it's a bunch of people who have said, you know, like, I am not only going to choose what I eat and who I get it from, but I am going to, you know, die on this hill that I'm going to also help other people access the type of food they want to freely and willingly choose.
Absolutely, man. So on another side of this, what is the, what is the direction in the nation going in terms of food, farming, and homesteading? And not, not from a standpoint of, of the, the, big, the big kid on the block, the federal government and the lobbyists and the corporations stepping on the throat. What are people actually doing? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Like, you know, people, uh, you know, especially in America, convenience is king. There's just no way around it. Um, so, you know, uh, Joel and I and a number of other people have talked about, you know, like early 2000s, you had Omnivore's Dilemma and Michael Pollan's and other people's kind of giddy optimism that we're going to see substantial change to the American food and farming system in the coming decades. Um, and, you know, to a very real extent, that has not materialized. Um, you know, take like, you know, younger people from what I've been told in certain parts of the country is they are building apartment complexes without kitchens. Um, and, and like, I've heard this in a number of, from a number of different people in a number of different parts of the country um, because th th there's, you know, a larger and larger growing segment of the United States population um, who do not want a kitchen. Like space is so valuable to them and cooking food is not. Um, I, I have a friend who works at a store, I think in Louisville, It might, he might have used to work at Whole Foods or a similar like health food store, but there's a guy who came in three times a day to eat most days. So he just comes in, grabs breakfast, doesn't have to do any dishes, doesn't have to cook anything. His time's super valuable. You know, it's just like, um, you know, so, you know, America's so big that there's a, you know, so you have like that trend happening. Um, at the same time, you know, people are demanding more so-called organic and natural food products. Um, but, you know, the organic label has basically been ruined beyond redemption by the federal government. I don't know if you heard about Elliot Coleman and David Chapman and a lot of the original founders of the organic food movement have launched a new truly organic food labeling program. Um, I think it's called like the real organic project. Um, cause, cause basically they realized that, you know, or, or the national organic program is just totally, totally ruined. <laughs> um, so that happening, um, because, you know, the, the national organic program is just completely corrupt and utterly, utterly incompetent on so many levels as a number of organizations have demonstrated and audits and, the lawsuit that, you know, just happened in the Midwest over something like a quarter or no, maybe it was like 8% of the nation's organic corn and soy was like falsified. And then, you know, we got fake shipments of organic corn and soy coming out of Eastern Europe that Washington Post or somebody reported on, um, you know, so you have increasing consumer demand for good quality food if it's convenient. Um, the, I don't know if you've seen this, but like in watching members of our buying club and like their friends of friends on social media, Kroger basically now does like curbside delivery 
of your groceries. So you can go on your phone and you can like choose the food you want and order it on your phone and tell them what time roughly you're going to pull up to the Kroger. And then when you pull up, you like click another button on your phone and somebody will run out all your food to you and you're done. Hmm. Um, it's called, I think it's called like click list. Um, and, and so man, like at, at the, the farmers and businesses that are going to survive are going to have to adapt to the age of hyper convenience. Um, you know, cause the number of Americans who are cooking is decreasing and those who still do cook, at the very least, they want an incredible amount of convenience generally. Um, you know, it's like when, when we started our buying club, we, you know, this would have been back in 2000. Abby was probably, I think, like a year old roughly. So 2006, give or take. We worked with a small local farm who raised – um, whole, you know, whole chickens, whole broilers for us. And then we would move like 1,500 of those in four or five months. You know, I, I'd go down and pick up 200, 250 chickens at a time. And like, you know, now 13 years later, we move more cut-up chicken and boneless, skinless chicken breasts and even more so like value added stuff like lunch meats, like it is a challenge for us to get people to buy whole chickens. Cause <laughs> who, wants, who, who wants to cook a whole chicken? They don't know how to cut it apart either. Yeah. Well, you know, some of these people would be willing to learn, but they're just like, you know, I, I gotta be at work at, you know, eight thirty. I gotta get the kids out the door at seven thirty. I'm going to get home at five. The kids got home at four 30, but we got to be at violin at six and Jimmy got to be at soccer at six 45. And, uh, you know, one thing I've been thinking about in terms, you know, I'm a dad, I got five kids. Um, and, and one of the hard parts is when you live an alternative lifestyle is like, you know, all of my kids peers are like booked up from dawn till dusk with school and activities. Um, and, and, you know, it's just like w when you can stand outside that system, you realize just how crazy it is, but you also realize like how it negatively impacts your family. Cause like, you know, when I was a kid, you could go outside in the evening and there'd be other kids to play with. Yeah. Yeah. But now, you know, the average kid in America, I think there's a study that said that they have like activities Six nights a week. Well, the, the, and the homework they're getting is insane, too. Oh, yeah. You know, my niece, and I mean, to be fair, she was taking, like, AP courses and stuff like that. But she had, on average, two and a half hours of homework a night. And my thought to that is, what are you doing with my kid for eight hours a day in the school if you have to send them home <laughs> with two and a half hours of work? Yeah. I mean, really, like, what are you doing? What, why, why aren't they doing most of their work in school where you can look at it and you can correct it instead of sending them home with this bullshit Common Core math that I'm sitting here looking at going, I don't need 109 <laughs> steps to do this and neither do you. Let me show you how to do it for you. And then they take it in. You know, my grandson takes it in. He's wrong. 
Well, the answer's right, but it's wrong. We have to do this, this methodology they've created. And that seems like it's permeated every walk of life. Like, how can we consume people's time? And, but I'm still back to it takes about three minutes to cut a chicken apart. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, that, that's the reality. If you can't cut a chicken apart in three minutes, you need to go to YouTube, spend three minutes one time, and learn how to do it. Yeah, and, and the thing is, though, there's just there's a lot of people – who will just pay though to have somebody else learn and do sure. that. And, um, you know, a friend of mine valets at a, at a restaurant in a city. And there's a guy who comes in like twice a week to this restaurant and he hands him a hundred dollar bill to park his car every time, two to three times a week, you know, 40 to 45 weeks a year. Um, So, you know, so it's one reason we got into elderberry syrup because, you know, and as Joel Salatin and I've talked about a few times now and why they've been making some changes at Polyface, convenience and value added is where it's at. You know, I have a friend who um, has a pastured pork operation and we were talking about, you know, profitability per pig, Um because I, I might write a, a book on raising profitable pigs over this next year. And, um, you know, like if he sells a pig, um, you know, let's say he sells, sells a pig by a half or whole, he might make like three to 600 bucks. If he sells that pig as, you know, one ounce snack sticks, he'll make three to $4,000. Sure. And like I, I have people at our buying club they will walk in and buy a 24-pack of snack sticks every month. One snack stick a day, basically. Send it to dad with his work. Some, you know, better than the vending machine is what they say. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'd rather, you know, give you two bucks than the vending machine two bucks. Um, it, it, so, it, you know, like it or not, we have to deal with people and the world as it is, not as we wish it would be. And people want convenience. People want value added. Uh, a lot of people don't want to spend their time in the kitchen. Um, and people want to feel, you know, um, one thing I always tell my wife is, you know, like everyone is either the hero or the victim. No one wants to be the villain, uh, uh, you know, of their story. And so people want to be the hero in how they spend their money generally, um, you know, which is one reason why they want natural organic products and stuff. So if, if you can, you know, provide convenience and provide value added products and make people feel good about getting stuff from you and your operation, you're going to be very successful in today's climate. <laughs> and that's someplace I think that people that are naturally oriented toward farming, homesteading, et cetera, need to think a little bit more. Because <laughs> I think what happens is we tend to assume everybody's like us, and they're not. And that means we leave money on the table. And, you know, one of my favorite sayings is, why do you hate money? You know, don't hate the money or the money will hate you back. You have to take these things as opportunities. If somebody doesn't want to cut up a chicken and it takes three minutes to do it and, and repackage it, and you can do it, and for that three minutes you can make an extra 12 bucks, that's a pretty good hourly rate. Because when I look at a chicken and I look at buying parts versus a whole chicken, I see waste because I'm like, I don't just see, you know, 
two thighs, two legs, and two breasts. I see bones for stock. I see skin that renders fat. You know, I see little pickings that make one more meal. And I see chicken soup. And I see breasts. And I see thigh cutlets. And I see, you know, uh, uh, you know drumsticks. And I see wings on a, on a grill. So, to me, not buying the whole chicken doesn't make a lot of sense because I get so much more from the whole chicken. But I would rather a person come in and buy, you know, two, two breast cutlets if that's what they want to feed their family than Tyson Anytizer Nuggets yep. and O'Reilly Fries, right? And if that helps them feed their family, great. And if that makes the farmer or someone that's more like you do some farming, but you're also kind of a middleman with a lot of stuff. Let somebody else grow the food. If that can put more money in the chain and people, instead of being forced into doing it through government compliance, are doing it because I don't want to cut my chicken up or I don't want to make my own syrup out of dried elderberries, great, fine, no problem. Yeah. Well, and I think the thing, too, for people to realize is, like, you know, competing with grocery store whole chickens or grocery store pork chops Mm. It's it's tough to make any money because you know you're looking at charging a three four five x multiple over the Kroger the Walmart sale price on these commodities. But like um, you go to any gas station and you look at how much beef jerky costs per ounce. <laughs> like, like that's the other thing about the value added side of the equation. Mm-hmm. There is um, there is so much room there to compete, you know, like, uh, you know, there's just, um, you know, you look at sausage like I can the the sausage at our buying club can be only, you know, instead of like pork chops being three times the price of Kroger pork chops on sale, you know, our sausage might be a buck more a pound, you know, so it's like six ninety nine versus five ninety nine. Or maybe a buck fifty. So consumers can really like, you know, they, they can dig that little bit of increased expense sure, sure. for the additional quality. Whereas, you know, when they look at your whole chicken that's let's say is three fifty a pound, and Aldi just had whole chickens at seventy nine cents a pound, you know, mentally for them it's a much bigger leap. To say I'm going to spend four and a half times more per chicken, um, then you know. But if your chicken breast is only a buck or two bucks more a pound than the chicken breast at Kroger, well, then they're like, oh, like I can do this. Like that makes sense. Yeah, you're selling to the want versus selling to the need. And the world of the mass corporation is selling to the need. If you try to go into the needs business, you're going to get killed. If you go into the want business, you have a chance to carve out a niche. And you're, you're making me think of other things, right? So, okay, now, how, how do I increase the value of this chicken breast? Well, I cryovac it in a package, and inside there is a lemon, a lemon pepper marinade, right? Just something like that simple. Well, oh, wow, it's lemon. So now if you have lemon, you have barbecue, mesquite, you have, like, say, three or four flavors, that actually is going to incentivize the person. Well, I want to try them all, right? So now instead of buying one, they buy four. And then you're competing, you know, you're competing with Bucky's or something with their marinated pork tenderloin, uh, <laughs> which is sold at a big premium over just going to buy a pork tenderloin. 
Yep. And that's how I think a lot of producers, if they want to make money, need to start thinking. And so they either need to push through a channel of somebody that does that, or they become the person that does that, one or the other. Yeah. No, it's it's just value added is where it's at. You don't you don't want to compete compete with commodities. No. Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, commodities are all about scale and efficiency. And you'll never have the scale and efficiency that's been built up through billions of dollars of taxpayer subsidies and, you know, 60 years of corporate research and momentum. Well, and they'll ki they will starve you to death on the business side because they can afford to. So here's a non-food example of, of what I mean by this. Uh, years ago... We have this stupid thing called the Wright Amendment in, in Dallas that prevents planes from flying out of Love Field, which is a smaller airport over DFW, uh, flying directly out of Texas. They have to fly somewhere else in Texas, and they can leave. And it's Southwest Airlines, and they're a discount airlines hub. So they decided to like loosen this up a bit. And I think it's actually been loosened up a little bit more now. But the first time they did it, they said, okay, you can fly to Los Angeles And like one other route. I think it was like Los Angeles and Philly or Los Angeles and Chicago. So this airline started up. I don't even remember what they were called. It might have been Legend. It was something. And they decided they were going to go into a boutique thing. So they brought in a couple, I think they were 737s or something like that. And they outfitted them two seats, like, like first class on each aisle, all the way back. So the whole plane was first class. And you, could, and you could fly to L.A. for like 350 bucks, something like that, basically first class. And they had three flights a day, and you could always get on one. And it was, I mean, it, it, they started to build a business. American Airlines brings in two 737s, outfits them exactly the same way, with the same service, and sells their tickets for $10 less. As soon as Legend goes underwater and goes out of business... American mothballs the two planes and takes the service away. So they, <laughs> they did it only to put the competitor out of business. They ran it at a loss. They didn't have to. They didn't have to do what Legend did and make it efficient and whatever. All they had to do was just we don't care. We'll lose money. We're bigger than them. When they bleed to death, we'll we'll shut the faucet off and stop bleeding ourselves. It's a little thing for us. And as long as you're in the commodities business, if you get big enough to be an irritant. That's what any one of these companies can do to you. They'll come right into your market. They'll sell at a loss. They don't care because they know you'll die the death of a thousand cuts really fast, and then they'll just take away whatever they did to get rid of you. And they're already at a huge cost advantage on top of that. So you have to be smarter. That's why I like what you're doing. Now, on that, John, what can people, what can I do, what can this audience do to help make a difference and to help with what you're trying to get done? Yeah. Well, you know, like you already tell them you should be growing some of your own food. You should be helping other people grow food. Uh, you know, any ways you can opt out of the industrial food system. If you can't grow your own food, you know, find real actual farmers and homesteaders to get food from. You, you know, because, you know, every dollar you spend with somebody like me or somebody like Jack, is a dollar that is not then used against you and your long-term freedoms and self-sustainability. <laughs> so, you, you know, the, the way I always put it is, you know, stop funding your enemies. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as much as possible. Uh, you know, like anyone who wants to come to the conference or anyone who wants to sponsor, if you have a business, um, we have sponsoring and vending opportunities. 
you know, one reason I wanted to come on the show because I was like, oh, like tons of Jack's listeners. This is going to be right up their alley. Um, so we'd love to have lots of people come be a part of the event. Um, you know, there's going to be two real food meals. I, one thing I love about Joel Salatin is he puts his farm where his mouth is and Polyface is actually donating a bunch of food to help make the event happen, you know, so we could keep it at a reasonable ticket price um, and stuff. Since, you know, doing food off the Cisco truck is cheap, doing food to feed, you know, three, four, five hundred people from small local farms isn't. And Joel's like, we're going to help make this happen. Um, you know, in your individual states, like, please pay attention to legislation. Um, because, you know, at the federal level, making legislative difference, very, very difficult. You know, you, you, like someone like Thomas Massey, I should have you have Massey on the show sometime um, since I'm friends with him. Because, like, you'd love him, Jack. He's a, he's the congressman here in Kentucky um, at the federal level. He lives in a completely off-grid house that him and his wife and family built themselves. Like, you know, he's like Thomas Jefferson reincarnated, only even better. Um, just amazing. You know, but the federal level, very, very hard to stop, you know, bad legislation and get good legislation moving. Um, but at the state level, you know, you really have, especially if you have a network of people, you can really affect, you know, this is why at the food safety conference, these regulators and these corporations are flummoxed because at the state level, they're finally starting to take some hits that hurt and that they feel. And, you know, we, we don't want to let up that pressure. So all across the country, we want to be pushing for, you know, more and more expansive cottage food laws and laws like in Wyoming and in Maine, you know, food, food freedom legislation and food sovereignty legislation you know, because we just want to always be eating up their bandwidth so that they don't have time to push bad bills through and, and try and push the momentum back the other way. Um, you know, so at the state level, um, I, I've actually been thinking about because I've had a bunch of people approach me, you know, starting like an organization completely devoted to state level, you know, legislation and organization around what we call, you know, craft and cottage food to, to basically have, you know, an entity that's constantly, you know, jabbing a knife into the belly of the beast. <laughs> awesome, man. So how can people find out more about your conference and, and attend? So you go just, um, it's roguefoodconference.com. Um, so go to the websites, tickets are on sale, they're 109 bucks right now. Probably by mid-September, the price is just going to go up 10 bucks or so. Um, so right now, as cheap as the tickets are going to be, um, you get two full meals as part of the day. You'll get like full conference notes and other stuff, and it's it's going to be a great time. <laughs> and, and just to be clear here, this is basically uh, maybe you'd call it a day and a half event because if people choose the extra option for the Friday evening dinner with the speakers at all. You've got that, and then it's a Saturday. So people could fly in on a you know like early Friday, take one day off from work, be there Saturday, fly home Sunday, and go back to their life. So yeah, it's, or, it's like or, quick in and out. Yeah, or because one reason we chose the Cincy Airport is you can even fly out Saturday. Okay. 
Um, you, you know, because Cincy is, you know, it's an international airport, has a ton of flights. So you could get in Friday evening and fly out Saturday evening if you're real tight. Um, but it's also, you know, Cincy is a great city. There's lots of good stuff to do in the area. You know, so if you wanted to make a weekend of it and do something fun on Friday or Sunday um, and stay an extra day. So I, I don't think you'll regret the choice. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today. I'll have links in the show notes so that people can uh, find out more and get tickets and attend. And I'm with you. I think well, the first thing is grow your own food. I've been telling people that for 11 years now. Um, it, it, it's sad that the Derveas family kind of went off into the world of, of D-bags. But, you know, they did. Say, <laughs> the one thing Jules Derveas said before he passed away, and I, it really resonated with me and why I had higher hopes for that whole group, was resistance is fertile. And I do see growing your own food is one of the greatest acts of insurrection and rebellion that a person can take in the modern age. I think 100 years ago, it was pretty mundane. It didn't really matter. It didn't really make a difference. Nobody really cared because everybody did it, and nobody was standing in the way of it. And no one had presented a solution as being not only you know, an option, but being better and being safe when what people have done for 10,000 years is no longer safe all of a sudden. Um, today, it's totally the opposite. Today, you are a renegade. You are in, in the midst of sedition and rebellion when you grow your own food. So people that are out you know, sharing all these political memes about whatever politician they hate or whatever, it's funny. <laughs> it's amusing. I get it. I do it a little bit, too. But you're not really changing anything. But when you go plant a seed in your backyard and you grow feed, food and you feed it to your family and your neighbors, you've made a difference. And I love the term rogue food. And I think that we need to take that like that needs to be like a brand. And, you know, what's always been kind of the hip thing is the counterculture. And I think that that's what we need to make the goal here is the new counterculture needs to be surrounded around producing your own food. And I don't care if you're vegan. I don't care if you're a carnivore. I don't care. I don't care. It doesn't matter. We all eat. It's it's the means by which. And so I'm glad to see what you're doing. And uh, you know we'll keep reminding people about it as, as we lead up to it because we're pretty far out here at like five months. Um, yeah. And thank you for all the work you've done as a whole, not just with this man. Um, all the stuff you've done. You've been an activist for a long time. And you are making a difference, and I appreciate it. And thank you for being on the show with us today. Thanks, Jack. Have a great day. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you guys enjoyed the discussion with John again. You can find more information on the Rogue Food Conference in the show notes for today's episode 2495. We're only five away from episode 2500. So I do want to remind you folks that if you want to be part of episode 2500, the time to call the jerk line is running out. You got today. You got tomorrow, you got Friday, and you got Saturday, because I'm a nice guy. I went ahead and added Saturday to it. But after Saturday, it's gone. If you want to call the jerk line, it's really easy to do. And I know it sounds like a bad pornographic 800 number or something, but it, it, it's really not. It's just a place where you can tell us how TSP has made a difference in your life. To do that, again, call the jerk line. The number to call the jerk line is 877-644-1345. 877-644-1345, and you can be part of episode 2500. 
Remember, the other way you can support this show, other than becoming a member, is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. That's where you can find all the products that I've reviewed on Amazon, and no matter what you buy, if you start your shopping there, you help support the show and the work that we do. Here's what we got for you guys today. The E-Tech City, and you guys know I love E-Tech City. They are a great company, stands behind their stuff. Four-pack of LED lanterns. These are not high-end lanterns, but they're damn good lanterns, and they last, and they work really great. You can read the whole write-up on them. But here's the reason I brought them out. They've been selling the original version for about $25.99 for four. That's about $6.50 apiece forever. Last winter, they came out with an upgraded option. It's got some really cool stuff. The tops have storage space uh, for little items. They have the ability uh, to um, to be turned down and dimmed, and they're just a better overall product. They have a magnetic base, so you can like slap one up on the hood of a car if your uh, hood light's not working. I'm just saying they have a lot more utility. And for that, the, the going price had been about $34. Bucks. They recently dropped that price to like $30. Bucks. But then today, they put them on sale for $25.99, which is the same price, yes, as the old version. So at $6.50 apiece, these new lanterns are really a great deal. They belong in your blackout kit for your home. They're great gifts. I mean, that's cheap. I'd even buy them now in advance for certain people for Christmas. This is a great gift to introduce people that you know that you want them to be more prepared. But when you talk about being prepared, they think you're a crazy guy living in a bunker. They're awesome. And if you want to read the whole story about how I found out about their quality and their warranty, read the write-up today. You can find it at tspaz.com. Again, the E-Tech City 4-Pack of LED Lanterns. That brings us to our song of the day. We're all doing songs from 1989 this week, which is 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Um, I've had one of my few times, maybe about once or twice a month, I break with John Adams' selection. He's kind of our musical program director at this point. He had a song that I just didn't feel it. The, the message was really good and really prophetic at how people have turned to computers for emotional support and things like that, but it was just not a good song. And I wanted something kind of pumped up and rocking today. Like I said right in the beginning, I'm in a damn good mood today. So I thought, what's more pumped up and rocking it than Queen? In 1989, Freddie Mercury was still around. They weren't touring anymore because of his health issues, but he still could belt out the songs. And I thought, what were some of the songs Queen released in 1989? There had to be some. And one of the greatest and maybe underrated Queen songs of all time was on I Want It All. Talk about a song that fits the message of this show. This is a song about going out and getting what you want instead of waiting for somebody to give it to you. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't.